announcement, we are still looking for someone to uh, teach downstairs on Wednesday nights. And if you need to, would like to volunteer, you can talk to Ann Birch when she gets back. If you talk to her before then, I hope it's by telephone. <laughs> if you're doing it some other way, I'm concerned. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth." Before we open the Word this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus on what God has to teach us so that we can understand the uh, doctrines related to the tribulation. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 as a function of, the, of your priesthood, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to study your word. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed to us everything we need to know about uh, all the issues related to our own lives, but you have also given us a glimpse into the panorama of history, and we know that things do not happen randomly, but there is a plan and a purpose, and you have also revealed to us not only the beginning but the end so that we can understand where history is going and how you will eventually work all things out, and that how in the end your justice will execute judgment against all who have rebelled against you. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the tribulation period, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we started about three weeks ago on the tribulation. We have been studying for the last six months the dispensations and covenants. Dispensations are the administration periods of God, the way God works out his plan in human history. The ultimate or the basic meaning of the word dispensation is an administrative period. And God administers human history according to different standards, different goals and objectives in each age, each period throughout human history. Uh, What generally shifts The emphasis from one dispensation to the next is new revelation. Well, we've gone through the Old Testament dispensations, the ages of the Gentiles, the age of the Jews, and the dispensational divisions in each of those ages. Then we looked at the Messianic age, which is followed by the present church age. And now we are looking at the final panorama of human history. If you look at the chart on the overhead... We are currently in the church age here. We don't know exactly where we are because what ends the church age is the coming of Jesus Christ for the church at the rapture. The rapture is a distinct event from the second coming. The rapture, rapture, Jesus comes in the clouds for the church. And at the second coming, the second advent, Jesus Christ returns to the earth as we will see tonight returns to the earth with the church accompanying him. And these these two events are separated by a seven-year period known as the Tribulation. It is the most horrendous period in all of human history, a time of uh, uh, intense judgment, horrible plagues, and a time when uh, mankind is all but destroyed. And if it were not, as the scripture says, if Jesus Christ did not return when he does, then the 
there would be a final end and the human race would self-destruct. So we are looking at these last two periods of human history, the period known as the tribulation here, ending with the second coming of Christ, and then next week we'll look at the last period in human history, the millennium, or the 1,000-year period of Jesus Christ's reign on the earth, also known as the time of the Messianic kingdom. In our study of the tribulation, we began by looking at different terms that the Bible uses for the tribulation. It's called Daniel's 70th week, and we looked at that passage in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is one of the most specific prophecies in all of Scripture and clearly demonstrates that there is a final seven-year period in God's plan for the nation Israel, not for the church, but for the nation Israel. Remember, during this time in history, that what makes the church unique is that we are in Christ, and in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor slave, male nor female. In other words, those ethnic distinctions between Jew and Gentile are not important in the present church age. They will be at the time of this seven-year period, and that tells us that something must happen in order to remove the church to return to an emphasis on Israel. We studied all of that in Daniel's 70th week, and we saw that that seven-year period is yet future. Another term that the Old Testament uses to refer to the tribulation is the term day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period, but we saw that it is a technical term which emphasizes a special divine intervention in human history, including both the concepts of judgment and blessing. And the day of the Lord begins during the tribulation. It is compared to the birth pangs, uh, the labor pains of a woman giving birth. And the birth, of course, is what takes place at the time of the second coming which gives birth to the millennial kingdom of time of unprecedented peace and prosperity and blessing on the earth when uh, Jesus Christ rules and reigns, and at the same time Satan will be bound in um, the bottomless pit. So the day of the Lord is a second term that we saw relating to the uh, time of the tribulation. We then looked at certain Old Testament passages that were related to uh, the tribulation, such as Zechariah 12, 2 and 3, where we are told that, and this refers to the end time of the tribulation, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And this is an image that, that that Jerusalem would be a continual problem in human history and especially a thorn in the side to all of the surrounding nations. And we see how much that is true today, how much more more that will be true even in the tribulation. Zechariah 12.3 states, And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And the Hebrew there is a word implying self-injury, cutting yourself. Uh, almost uh, doing permanent injury to yourself. So all who lift it, all who attempt to solve the problem with Jerusalem will just end up harming themselves. And finally, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And that occurs at the final event in the tribulation called the Battle of Armageddon. And we will look at that in detail this evening. Zechariah 12.4 goes on to say, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Amos 5.18 talks about this same period and says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord... For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, emphasizing the judgment aspect, the cataclysm that occurs throughout the whole earth. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? It will be a horrible time, the worst time in all of human history. It includes a time when even the heavenly bodies change because of the, the uh, divine judgment on the universe. It will come about after this, Joel 2.28 says, that I will pour out my spirit 
On all mankind, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And of course, another thing to observe here is that this is talking about Jews. This is not talking about Gentiles. It is not talking about the human race in general. It is talking specifically about what will happen in Israel when God establishes the new covenant with them at the second coming. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We saw further that this time is called the time of uh, Jacob's trouble. Time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It's called the time of the wrath of God, a day of wrath in Zephaniah 1.15, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Further, it's called the time of the tribulation, and the term great tribulation describes the intense horrors during the last three and a half years. The, the seven-year period of tribulation is divided into two Segments, the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, and what divides them, the event that comes in the middle, is an event called the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist, who is the leader of the uh, world empire, global empire centered in the West, that the Antichrist will set up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies of a new temple. Right now, you can't uh, go on the Temple Mount because there is a uh, little geographical problem. I'm going to see if I can switch over to this just a minute. Got a picture here. There we go. Aren't these... uh, Toys, wonderful, all these electronic projectors. Here is uh, Jerusalem, and this is the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is one of the most holy of all sites to Islam, and it sits on top, sits on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the where Solomon's Temple and later Herod's Temple uh, were, were established, and this is where the millennial Uh, This is where the tribulation temple will be built. Jews will not allow it to be built anywhere else other than on the temple mount. So something must occur either near the end of the church age or in the interim period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation or in the first three and a half years of the tribulation that will destroy the dome of the rock so that the Jews can build a tribulation temple there. And in the holy place of the tribulation temple, the um, Antichrist will establish his that's where the Antichrist will establish his uh, idol and set up a false religious system in Israel. That separates the tribulation from the last half called the Great Tribulation. Then we saw in terms of the beginning and length of the tribulation that it begins not with the rapture, but it begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. And it's at that point that the seven-year countdown begins. And it lasts a little less than seven years because the the prophetic year in Scripture is a time of 360 days, not 365 and a quarter days. So seven years, seven times five is 35, and add in your quarter quarter days, and there's about 38 days short, and then the Lord's going to return a little sooner than that in order to prevent the destruction of Israel. We then began a look at the purposes for the tribulation, first of all, to execute judgment on the wicked and rebellious nations who have rejected Jesus as Messiah and who are hostile to Israel. The second purpose for the tribulation is to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. All of the horrors that take place show that Satan, who wants to be the god of this planet and wants to bring about peace and 
security is that it will demonstrate that he's incapable of being or being the God he wants to be. Third, it will provide a time for millions to be saved during the tribulation. This is fulfilled specifically in Revelation 7, 1 through 17. And fourth, we saw that it will prepare the nation Israel for the coming of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. There are several key people and events during the tribulation period. The first is the Antichrist. And this is a term used to refer to to the first beast. There are several titles of the Antichrist. This term is only used one time in the scriptures in 1 John chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And there we read that uh, in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. So there we has it, John uses that technical term, Antichrist, that he is coming, he is yet future. He's further defined in 1 John 2.22, This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So he is going to reject the Trinity, and he's going to have his own alternate religion. He's called the Antichrist, not because he is against Christ, but the Greek preposition anti indicates substitution. He's going to set himself as a substitute Messiah, a substitute religious uh, or substitute Savior. Other titles that are used of the Antichrist, he's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7, verse 8. He's called the insolent king in Daniel 8, verse 23. He is referred to as the prince who is to come. And he comes out from the Romans. And and so that indicates in one passage there that he is a Gentile, Daniel 9, 26. He's called the one who makes desolate, who commits the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 27 and Matthew 24, 15. He's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 because he rejects the law of God. He's called the son of destruction because he will bring destruction upon the earth in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's furthermore called the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And he is described as a beast, the first beast, in Revelation chapter 11, as well as in 13.1 and other verses. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 13 to look at the description of the Antichrist in that chapter. Revelation chapter 13. Now this is all we're getting tonight, last week and this week, is an overview, just sort of a panoramic look at these events so that you can have an idea of the the trends that are going to take place and some of the major events that will take place during the tribulation and how they relate to one another. There's so much confusion. We're going to look at the Battle of Armageddon, and if you, your concept of Armageddon is derived from the secular press, then you probably just think of it as some major cataclysmic battle that's going to uh, end, the, end the human race. Throughout the ages, people have come up with all kinds of identifications for Armageddon. All kinds of battles have been called uh, re- described as the Battle of Armageddon. World War I was considered Armageddon. World War II was considered Armageddon. Any, any major conflict has been called Armageddon because people just don't want to translate or interpret the Scriptures literally. But Armageddon is not an idealized battle. It is a specific uh, military campaign that takes place in Israel. And it is between the forces of Antichrist and his attempt to destroy the Jews. So we have to understand a little bit about him. And one of the best introductions is in the first ten verses of Revelation chapter 13. There John sees a beast. In verse 1, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now the the sea, the the tumultuous, storm-tossed salt water is often an image of the uncontrolled, violent nations on the earth. It is an, it is an image of the Gentile nations. It's, it's not Israel. The, the, it's the Gentile nations that are lawless, that are uh, living apart from God, that are tumultuous and uncontrollable. And so John sees a beast. This pictures the, this man in all of mankind's worst um, 
worst images, the worst associations we have are when somebody is acting in a bestial manner. This is not someone who is pictured as he will be in the, looked at by the human press at that time. He will be a man that has a tremendous amount of personal attraction, personal charisma. Uh, all of the people we have talked about in politics who uh, have Teflon and no criticisms can attach to them or they're unable to, um, you know, no matter what charges are brought against them, they manage to avoid them. Uh, that's nothing compared to what this man will be like. He is, uh, he is going to be the uh, eventual antitype of all of these type of dictatorial or autocratic leaders who just want to do whatever they want to without any uh, accountability to law. It is man at his worst. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations, having ten horns and seven heads. Now, you can't understand that if you don't understand Daniel, which is one reason in two weeks we're going to start a study of Daniel. Daniel provides the background to understand all the imagery in Revelation. And the ten horns represent ten powers, ten uh, national powers, usually referred to as the revived Roman Empire, some Western coalition, in a Western European coalition, seven heads describe seven consecutive major earthly empires that have been arrayed against Israel since the time of ancient, the ancient Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and the revived Roman Empire, and then eventually, and eventually the revived Roman Empire. Those are the seven. Uh, consecutive empires in earth's history that have been against Israel. On his horns were ten diadems, and this relates to Daniel, chapter 7, where he conquers those ten nations and brings them together in a uh, confederation. On his heads were blasphemous names, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Now, once again, you have to understand Daniel, because in Daniel, the leopard portrays the ancient Greek empire under the mighty Macedonian Alexander the Great. The bear represented the uh, power of Persia in the ancient world and their massive, sprawling empire throughout all of the what is now the Middle East, extending all the way from the Mediterranean to India. And the mouth of a lion, and a lion was the representative of the ancient Babylonian empire under the great Nebuchadnezzar. So he is going to have elements in his empire that are like all of the three major empires discussed in Daniel. So he is going to combine the strengths of each of those, the speed of the leopard, the power of the bear, and the destructive strength of the lion. We're told in the second half of the verse, and the dragon gave him his power. The dragon is Satan himself, so this tells us that he will be personally indwelt by Satan, and his throne, and he derives his power, his throne, and his authority from Satan. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. So he's going to have some kind of a wound that will be mortal, and he will die, and it will be resuscitated to life through a satanic counterfeit miracle. And the whole earth will be amazed and follow after him. Notice it says the whole earth will follow after him. He will be on the verge of having a global empire and all will follow him because of this miraculous healing. Verse 4, And they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So there's going to be a satanic or luciferic religion associated with his rule which many people think is something akin to the current, uh, current New Age movement. It's going to probably be like that. What it will be exactly, we don't know because we're not there yet. And they will worship the beast. Verse 5, And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. So this is descriptive of the first three and a half years of the, of the tribulation. He is going to be blasphemous and hostile to God in verse 6. And then verse 7 describes his warfare against the saints and how he will be engaged in a campaign to wipe out all believers during the tribulation. So that is the Antichrist. There will be no freedom of religion there. He is a beast with all of the 
terrible associations and connotations of that term. He's called the despicable person in Daniel 11.21, and he's called the strong-willed king because of his arrogance against God in Daniel 11.36. And then in Zechariah 11.16 and 17, he's called the worthless shepherd. So these are the variety of titles that are assigned to this personage um, by the Scriptures. He's going to rise to power between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week, and uh, he will assimilate a confederation of Western powers. We covered most of this last time. That's why I'm flipping through it fairly rapidly so we can get uh, just everyone caught up. A number of people weren't here last week, so I don't want to leave you in the lurch. He's the head of a confederation of Western European powers during the tribulation years. We know that he rises to power during that early part of the tribulation, probably before the peace treaty, and he will assume control by force. And there are these ten of this ten-nation confederacy, three of the nations will be unwilling participants. He will subdue them by force and then put together this coalition of European powers. I don't think it has anything to do with the current uh, European economic community, but it will certainly uh, have that, that may certainly be a forerunner of this coalition. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to set up his statue in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation. He's usually pictured in the Bible as a warrior who pursues peace and wages war. He's crafty, he's violent, he is out to achieve his aims no matter what it costs and he will operate on deceitful tactics. He's personally indwelt and empowered by Satan. The first three and a half years during his rise to power, he will pull together his uh, uh, reign of terror that will uh, call for the allegiance of everyone on the earth. Although generally the first three and a half years are going to be characterized by peace, it is going to be an enforced peace that comes under his totalitarian heel. At the end of those seven years, his worldwide coalition will begin to fragment, and then an army from the east will invade in concert with one from the south. This invasion of these national, these national armies, one from the east of 200 million, one from the south and the Arabic bloc, will culminate in the Armageddon campaign in Israel. If you've got an army headed from from, the, uh, from Asia with 200 million, they cross the Euphrates and head towards Egypt. You've got an army headed up from Egypt, from North Africa. They're going to meet in Israel. At the same time, the uh, Antichrist is going to be at the head of a Western European army, and it's all going to come together in Israel. And part of Satan's plan and agenda at this time is to destroy Israel. God, that, that is the only way Satan can achieve his aim now in history. Now that he has been defeated at the cross, his aim is to demonstrate that God is incapable of even fulfilling his promises. And if he can prove, no longer will Satan be able to prove that he can function as a God. So what he's going to try to do as, as sort of a last attempt is to try to prove that God is incapable of being God as well that no one can control these creatures who have uh, free will and sin natures and are out there doing whatever they want to. And so he's going to try to destroy Israel because if he can destroy Israel before God fulfills all of his promises to Israel in the Old Testament, then God will be proved to be unfaithful and unworthy and that his promises were just so much hot air. So that is the agenda, and that's the, the uh, overall strategy of the Antichrist during the tribulation is to destroy Israel. So all of these military powers meet in Israel for the campaign. Literally, it's not one battle, it's a campaign, and it takes place in at least four different locations in um, Israel. It covers about 120 furlongs, which is almost the entire uh, nation of Israel takes part in this in the battle of Armageddon. His destiny is to be sent to the lake of fire with the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19. And we saw last time that he is a Gentile. He is not a Jew because of Revelation 13.1. He comes out of the sea. Daniel 11. Uh, the type of the Antichrist is Antiochus Epiphanes, a leader of, the, of uh, Syria who was a Gentile. 
and he is said to be of Roman descent, according to Daniel chapter 9. So he is a Gentile. In contrast to him, the second beast who comes up out of the sea, out of the earth rather, is called the false prophet. The false prophet, and he is described in Revelation 13, 11 and following. There, John says, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. He is compared to a lamb because he is the one who is going to be the religious leader, religious dictator of Israel. He may even uh, try to function as a high priest, and he certainly is trying to bring worship of Israel to the Antichrist. Uh, in Revelation 13:11, we read, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So that's his deceitfulness. On the outside, he's going to look like a lamb, like uh, making a false claim to be the Lamb of God, like Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. So this is a reference to the fact that he is going to aspire or try to convince people that he is this, uh, this Lamb. He is a distinct person from the Antichrist. A completely distinct personality. In fact, if you hold your hold your finger there in Revelation 13 and just turn over a couple of pages to chapter 16, flip ahead to the sixth bowl judgment. This takes place just within weeks, probably, of the end of the tribulation. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river of the Euphrates. Its water was dried up. That's so that the armies from the east have a dry highway to invade across. That the way may be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the, the dragon is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the first beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the second beast, three unclean spirits like frogs. So, Right there in Revelation 16:11, we see combined in one verse these three powerful individuals in the tribulation. These are, they don't represent ideas; they're not forces. They are distinct, powerful individuals who are out to destroy Israel ultimately. He is called the that is the false prophet is referred to as a Jew who arises from the earth. He comes out of the Earth, and the Hebrew there, gay, uh, is the translation of aretz, the Hebrew word that is often used to refer to the land. The land of Israel is uh, haaretz. So he comes from the earth in contrast to the first beast who comes out of the sea. So he will be a Jew. He will be a racial, ethnic Jew. He is religiously influential. He is the religious dictator. Of Israel, This is his role. The first beast is primarily political. The second is religious. He is the one who comes along to try to lead everyone to their worship of the Antichrist in the temple. He will be motivated by Satan. And he has authority that has been delegated to him by Satan just as the first beast does. And he is the one who promotes the worship of the first beast. And promoting the worship of the first beast in order to uh, give himself the proper credentials and to validate what he says, he is going to be able to perform many false uh, miracles, signs and wonders. So this is the only time since the age of the apostles that the scripture teaches that there will be a time of signs and wonders. Uh, not the kind of false signs and wonders and miracles that are just false healings that you have today, the leg lengthenings and other things that happen with all the religious evangelists on TV that are n- never documented. You know, the interesting thing is when Jesus healed people and when Paul and Peter healed people, they were people who had constitutional defects. They were people who were blind from birth, people who had leprosy. People who were deaf and dumb their whole life, there was, there, it, it was known to everybody around that they had these constitutional uh, problems, and Jesus healed them, not these pseudo-problems that 
these so-called healing evangelists emphasize all the time. But the next time you have anybody doing anything approaching legitimate healing and miracles, it's going to come from the Antichrist and from the false prophet. Second Thessalonians 2 says that the Antichrist also performs signs and lying wonders. He will deceive the unbelieving world so that many in the world will follow after the Antichrist as, as God. He will promote the idolaters' worship of the Antichrist in the tribulation temple, and he will have the power of death over those who do not worship the beast. This is related to the sign, uh, taking the sign of the, of the beast, the sign 666, which is more than just being able to uh, engage in commerce. Those, it is related to many believe, and I think rightly so, I think there's evidence for this, that taking the sign will involve some sort of religious oath of allegiance to the Antichrist, so that it's not just going down and signing up for your social security number or getting a new credit card or something that is rather neutral, but when you get the number that allows you to, to um, uh, buy and sell in the tribulation period, you will... Uh, swear an oath, a religious oath of allegiance to the Antichrist and against God. And for this reason, those who take the mark of the beast are going to be the special victims of and special targets of some of God's judgments during the tribulation period. And if you do not take the sign, then you will be sought after and put to death by the powers that be by the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to have great economic power, and he is the one who's going to oversee the um, uh, mark of the beast, putting the mark of the beast on all of those who wish to engage in any commerce. That's found in, in the last verse of chapter 13. Our, let's start at verse 15. Revelation 13:15. There was given to him, that is the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast. So he's going to make it seem as if this idol comes alive. That the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So he will be responsible for martyring probably hundreds of thousands of Christians. It will make the Jewish Holocaust pale by comparison. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and of the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and there's a lot of dis- debate and discussion as to exactly what that might be, everything from a UPC code. The next time you buy something and you look at the UPC code, you can always notice that the, uh, the skinny lines that are labeled six, if you'll notice the first, middle, and last line in a UPC code is six. That's the base for all their codes, and so there were... Christians 15 or 20 years ago when they started coming out with UPC codes who were convinced that that was the mark of the beast. In fact, Moody Monthly had a great great picture on its cover one time, had a picture of somebody with a UPC code tattooed on their forehead. Well, there's always that kind of silly speculation today. There's uh, microchips that can be embedded under the skin, all kinds of things. Apparently, though, this is going to be something that is visible because it's going to be associated with this mark of allegiance so that you can readily identify someone who has taken this mark of allegiance to the Antichrist. So they'll be given a mark on their right hand or forehead, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. 666 is a number of man. And there's all kinds of speculations as to what that might be, but basically what it indicates is he represents the highest and best of what man is, but he is still a beast because of the uh, terrible consequences of sin and evil. Well, that's the second major person or group of people in the Tribulation. The third group is the 144,000. Now, there's always some kind of religious group that comes along and they want to identify themselves as the 144,000 of Revelation. But Revelation is very precise about who these 144,000 are. They are Jews from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Notice if you multiply 12 times 12,000, you get 144,000. It's very precise. We're not talking with mystical numbers here. 
Revelation 7, 4 states, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And these will be the evangelists that go forth during the tribulation. This is, And they're all Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. There are no lost tribes of Israel. That's sort of a, uh, a myth that arose during the Middle Ages that the ten tribes of the north, the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel, were wiped out and they were scattered throughout Assyria during the Assyrian captivity. However, the Jew, they knew who they were. And when uh, uh, the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, uh, many returned with them who were of those original ten tribes from the north. Not only that, but many escaped the north and went to the south. So there were many Jews who, even during the time of Christ, knew that they came from one of those ten northern tribes. God, of course, knows who every one of them is, and he is not confused. He's not lost a one. And so he is going to, uh, there will be 12,000 from each of those tribes saved. They're scattered all over the earth, and they will be the evangelists who go forth proclaiming the gospel. Now, many of these, hypothetically speaking, let's assume that the rapture is going to occur in the next 10 or 20 years. Well, many of these 144,000 then would be on the earth today. There will be many who will be witnessed to and be given the gospel by perhaps someone in this congregation. They may reject the gospel now, but all of a sudden one day, their good friend, you, will disappear. And they will remember what you told them about the rapture. And they will go dig out the track that you gave them or the information you gave them. And they're going to trust Christ and they're going to be one of the 144,000. So that's one reason Jewish evangelism is very important today. Because not just that, that of course, they ought to be saved today and, and avoid the tribulation, but there will also be these 144,000 who will hear the gospel in the church age and respond to it after the rapture and become one of these sealed evangelists during the tribulation period. In Revelation 7.3, they're called bondservants of our God. These are, they're, they're bound, they're, they are devoted, their lives are sealed to God so that nothing can harm them. Verse 3, do not, there's a warning to the angels before the judgment, the vial is poured out. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So apparently there is, there, there is a visible seal on their foreheads. Not every believer in the, in the tribulation, but the 144,000 to protect them, and they will have a special divine protection during the tribulation so that they can continue their evangelistic mission. And that is the third point, that they are sealed, which suggests that they cannot be harmed. Now, the fourth group of interesting individuals, interesting personages in the, in the tribulation, relates to the two witnesses. The two witnesses, they're variously identified as Elijah, Moses, or Enoch, two of the three. But there's no clear support in the Scriptures identifying who they are. The reason people choose Elijah is because he was taken to heaven. He never went through physical death. Moses uh, died physically. Nobody witnessed it. So the people often think that Moses went up on the mountain and then he died and God took his body to uh, or the, his body was protected by the angels. And then Enoch walked with God and just walked right into heaven one day because of his close fellowship with God. So since, especially since Elijah and Enoch did not see physical death, there are many people who think that the two witnesses are uh, a resurrected or brought back Elijah and Enoch. But there's no support for that. They are just two Jewish prophets, like the prophets in the Old Testament, who are used in a remarkable way. Now, what is the course of the tribulation? The course of the tribulation. Well, during the first three and a half years, there's going to be a time of general peace on the earth. There will still be uh, wars and violence as the Antichrist seeks to extend his power base. But it will be a time of, of general, um, general peace. It is during this time you have three successive judgments during the period of, the, of uh, Revelation. You, the first is the seal judgments. There are seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments. Here are the trumpet judgments here, and then seven bowl judgments. 
The seven seal judgments take place during that first three and a half year period. And the seventh seal judgment is the next uh, group of judgments, the trumpet judgments. Here's another graphic showing the seal judgments. Each one follows the one before and its effects continue throughout this three and a half year period until you get to the seventh one, which occurs about three years into the tribulation. First seal judgment. The first four are called the, the uh, often known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to get a quick overview of Revelation, a run-through. We don't have time for a walk-through tonight, so hope you have on your spiritual jogging boots. Just to give you a sense of what is described in Revelation. The first seal judgment, it refers to the Antichrist. He's the rider with the bow who goes out conquering and to conquer. It's generally a period of Cold War where he pressurizes other nations to join his coalition. Second seal judgment involves the red horse who goes forth to, and there is a violence. There's uh, war, actual hot wars taking place during this time. The second seal judgment. killing of one army against another, increase of the shedding of blood and death. The third seal judgment is the black horse judgment, which indicates that there will be a, a, an assault on the uh, agricultural products of the world so that there is uh, going to be a, a tremendous inflation during that time that it's going to be hard to buy wheat or barley. Uh, there will not be any harm to the oil or wine during that time. That comes later. Then the fourth seal judgments, the ashen horse who brings with him death in Hades and during this time one-fourth of the earth's population. So the population today of six billion, one and a half billion people on the earth will die during this second period or during this fourth seal judgment, probably about two years into the tribulation. That will be massive. I mean, just imagine what's going to take place. There will be famine, famine and increase in disease and pestilence Things like the bubonic plague, the black death of the Middle Ages will seem uh, rather pale by comparison. The fifth seal judgment is martyrdom, and this involves the death of many believers who are uh, executed by the governments during that time, by the Antichrist. The sixth seal judgment involves physical disturbances, earthquakes. The sun will be turned black, the moon will turn like blood, stars will fall to the earth, The sky will split like a scroll. Mountains and islands moved out of their place. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus is asked by the disciples, what are the signs of the times? And in Matthew 24, Jesus says, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be earthquakes until I come. And every now and then you hear somebody talk about, wow, during the 20th century, we're really seeing an increase in earthquakes. That's one of the great myths by prophecy teachers. A couple of years ago, at the pre-trib rapture group, uh, a couple of geologists presented a very well-documented paper demonstrating that the only thing that has increased about earthquakes in the 20th century is our awareness and communication about them. We now have televisions everywhere. We have uh, seismic uh, uh, sensors all over the earth so that we're much more aware of the earthquakes, but their intensity, in fact, has declined a little bit in recent decades. So don't get caught up in this thing that many people do, that, that, well, there's more wars now and there's more earthquakes, so the rapture must be right around the corner. These are signs of the second coming in Matthew 24, not signs of the rapture. Jesus is talking about the wars and rumors of wars and the earthquakes and the um, things that are going to happen during the tribulation. And then the seventh seal judgment will be the trumpet judgment, which we will get to in just a minute. So if you summarize the first three and a half years, we see that, wait a minute, I've lost something in the slide presentation. Point number one, Israel is in the land, but they're in the land as an unregenerate people. They're going to be in the land, but as an unregenerate people. They have to be in the land, and there has to be a nation, Israel, for the Antichrist to sign a peace treaty with them that starts the beginning of the tribulation. So I, it's, it's possible that this nation Israel we see today could be uh, 
ejected from the land and we could go another 500 or 1,000 years, but I doubt that that's, that's likely. The, the remarkable things that have occurred in the last 150 years to make it possible for there to be uh, a Jewish state in Israel are nothing less than miraculous. There are a tremendous number of myths that float about uh, concerning the traditional or historical relationship between Arabs and the Jews that really hasn't been all that bad. The Jews who lived in Arab lands during the last 2,000 years didn't have it that rough, and those are all lies. The the persecutions that Jews went through for the last 2,000 years, especially those who lived in places like Yemen and Saudi Arabia, in Iraq and Iran have just been absolutely horrendous. And it's some of the best-kept secrets, and the Arabs have a great PR campaign to try to deceive the West into thinking that, that the Jews and Arabs really did get along well for the last 2,000 years. It's just when they moved back into Palestine, remember that's, an, that's a, not a biblical term for the land, but, but, and that itself is a lie to try to give some kind of validity to an Arab claim to the land. But the Arabs never had any right to that land, and there never were any people known as Palestinians. That is a, that is a, a myth. If you want to read a good book on that, there's a book called From Time Immemorial by Joan Peters. Joan Peters was an author who set out in the early 80s to, to uh, write a history of Arab-Israeli uh, problems, and she discovered about halfway into her book that everything she believed to be historically true about Arab-Jewish relationships was false. She had bought all the lies, and she realized how deceived everybody was, and she wrote a massive book on the history of Arab-Jewish relationships. So if you want to take the time, uh, Dan just bought the book. It came. He's in the middle of midterms. He looked at it and says, she wrote this whole 400-page book in like five-point type. How can I read it? needs a magnifying glass. But it's an excellent work and is filled with information that you will never get from the standard secular media sources about the historical relationship of uh, Jew and Arab. So the, the Jews will be back in the land, but as an unregenerate people, there will be the sealed judgments. Uh, point number two, the sealed judgments. Point number three, the first four sealed judgments, as I stated are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then, fourth, the rise of the Antichrist and the ten-nation confederacy takes place at the beginning of the seven years, at the beginning of the tribulation. Fifth point, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed and begin their ministry in Revelation chapter 7. And then the seventh seal judgment, which... The seventh seal judgment is the seven trumpet judgments. And those seven trumpet judgments begin in Revelation 8 and 9. And then the seventh of those judgments, that goes on into the second half, the second three and a half year period, because the seventh trumpet judgment contains the final series of seven bold judgments. Those are the worst judgments. That's right at the end of the tribulation. And then it is characterized by the rise of the ministry of the two witnesses who are uniquely protected by God during the tribulation. Then we have the trumpet judgments. This is an overview of the trumpet judgments on the earth. There is a demonic invasion that takes place with the, with the uh, what was that, one out of order. The first trumpet judgment is hail and fire in Revelation 8-7. Second trumpet judgment, there is a burning mountain. It's almost as if it's an asteroid that lands on the earth. Sounds like something right out of the modern movie theater. A fireball that thrones into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. So think about what that will do to trade and commerce. And it will turn much of the sea bitter. The third trumpet judgment, this burning fallen star... Uh, falls on a third of the rivers and springs uh, that makes them bitter, and many die because they drink the waters. In the fourth trumpet judgment, there will be a blackout of the sun, and a third of the sun is is, uh, blacked out, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, 
So light is diminished by one-third, and there is a threefold woe pronounced on earth dwellers. This will probably occur around year five to six in the tribulation. Just think about how horrific this is going to be to those who are living on the earth at that time. It's going to start getting cold, and without the, uh, with the, all of the damage to the shipping, the oil from the Middle East is not going to make it here, and so people in New England especially will get quite cold during the winter, probably paying $15, $20 a gallon for oil just to heat their homes, just to give you some idea of what a pleasant time the tribulation will be. And that's going to affect everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. Revelation 9 describes the fifth trumpet judgment, the demonic invasion of the demons released from the pit under the command of Abaddon or Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. And they are allowed to torment people on the earth for five months. It's going, they're going to bring a tremendous physical, uh, a disease of physical pain on people on the earth. Their appearance is like locusts coming out of the the pit, and they have a sting like a scorpion. Then the sixth trumpet judgment involves the invasion of the 200 million horsemen from the east. Uh, Another one-third of mankind is going to be destroyed, so now we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of four out of six billion uh, humans have died during the tribulation. So it's going to be a time of of a tremendous business, I guess, if you're in the funeral home business. Seventh bowl judge, the seventh trumpet judgment includes the uh, seven bowl judgments. Now, during this middle point of the tribulation, we see the unrolling of the little scroll in Revelation chapter 10, which re- relates to the judgments during the middle and second half of the tribulation. If you read those verses, it says that the scroll is eaten and is considered sweet, but then it is, when it hits the stomach, it turns bitter. And this indicates that biblical prophecy is sweet, considered sweet by many people, but the announced judgments are bitter to take. Then the Antichrist will survive a head wound. He will be resuscitated and returned. return to power and be worshipped by most of the people on the earth. This is also the time of Satan's great temper tantrum where he is cast out of heaven into the earth in Revelation chapter 12. And this provides the basis for the escalation of judgments during the second half of the tribulation. The Antichrist will be resurrected in Revelation 13:3 through 4. And then he will consolidate his stranglehold on the west. As the bold judgments are poured out onto the earth, everything uh, boils up to the culminating assault on Israel and the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist consolidates his stranglehold on the west and then invades the Middle East. There will be the death and the resurrection of the two witnesses, which are witnessed by everyone on the earth. That could really only happen with current technology. There will be the abomination of desolation in Revelation 13, 3 and 4, and the rise of the false prophet in Revelation 13, 8, or 13, 11 through 15. There will also be the mark of the beast, which we've already discussed, and the persecution of the Jews in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Then we come towards the end when God is going to protect Israel and bring them to that point, we saw last time in Daniel 12:7, where he will bring them to a point where the discipline has now become so severe, two-thirds of Israel is going to die during the tribulation. One-third survives, and they all believe. And it is at this time that the pressure becomes so great that finally their, their stiff-necked rebellion against God that they have been known for since the... Uh, since 2000 or for the last 3000 years they will finally bow in submission to God and cry out to the Messiah to come and deliver them now this is how it happens Micah 2:12 God says I will surely assemble all of you Jacob and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel this is that one third that trusts that will trust in Christ I will put them together like sheep in the fold this is going to occur in a particular area 
down near Petra in Edom. And it's an area, a fold in the mountains that is just like a sheepfold. It's a place of protection where all of the violence going on around them will be kept from them. They will be put together in this area known as Basra. Like a sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, they will be noisy with men. Jesus announced it, that let those who are in Judea, when they see these signs, flee to the mountains. They were to flee south through the mountains of Judea and across the Jordan into the mountains of Edom. Revelation 12.6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, the woman there is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. This is during the second half of the tribulation. Now, I'm going to try to give us a map here. There we go. Here's the map. The Valley of Jezreel is up here. This is the Valley of Armageddon, which is the center of one arena of conflict in the campaign of Armageddon. There's another area down in the hill country. There's another area to the east of Jerusalem here that is where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. And then there's the valley down here. This is, the modern name is Bucera. This is Basra in the Old Testament. Petra is located just here. And it's this valley that you see in this light tan area, this valley in which they will flee, or to which they will flee. They will enter through Petra, enter into this valley, and that is the sheepfold where God, that God has prepared for them, where he will uh, protect them. Revelation 12:14 and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness that just is figurative speech indicating the divine protection that will enable them to escape the onslaughts of the foreign armies so they can escape into the wilderness. Zechariah 12:10 the Lord says I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Just notice, they'll look on me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him. So see, it's a reference to the Trinity. It's a subtle reference to the Trinity in those verses. They will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. As they come to realize at this point that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they've gone through all this horrible, horrible suffering for the last 2,000 years plus because of their rejection of Christ, there will be incredible grief and remorse in Israel at this particular time among that Jewish remnant. And then we have this other insight from Isaiah 63 that as they, rec- as they come to that time of grief, they're going to cry out to the Lord and the Lord will deliver them in battle. And this is the picture in Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden with garments of glowing colors from Basra, the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? So he comes to Basra to deliver them when they call for him. And... Um, Verse 2, the question is asked, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? That picks up imagery from Revelation 17 in the Battle of Armageddon. I have trodden the wine trough alone and from the peoples, that is the nations, the Gentiles, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. So that picture is the deliverance to Israel, and they will all be saved according to Romans 11:25 and 26, specifically down in verse 26. Notice that it says, And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. So he comes to Zion, touches down on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14:4, and then from there he goes to Basra to deliver them militarily, And then he defeats the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet and establishes his kingdom. That is what happens at the second coming. That is the campaign of Armageddon when Jesus Christ comes as the Messiah for Israel called for by them and will establish his kingdom. Now next time we'll come back and look at what happens exactly at the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom and what that will be like. With our heads bowed,
and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time together, and we see in the Scriptures that how things will eventually culminate in human history. We also gain comfort from this, knowing that no matter what people may do today, they cannot destroy your plan, and the human race cannot destroy itself. That you are in control of human history, and these, uh, this revelation that you have given us, both in Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and in other prophecies of the Old Testament, as well as the New, that in these prophecies we see how the human race will come to an end and how you will be glorified in that process. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain by putting their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we thank you that we have salvation by grace, not based on works. And we thank you that when you come, we will be coming with you in your glory as as your entourage and as your bride. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.